Uh, this is the man that Dr. James S. Taylor called the Catholic Socrates of the 20th, 20th century. And like the gadfly of Athens, he, he asked questions. He asked questions which very few other authors, I think, have the have had the lucidity or the, the, the courage sometimes to, to ask about our present moment. That's why his books were republished. And could you just introduce the figure of Dr. John Sr. and this, perhaps the impact he's had on your own intellectual and spiritual formation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was at the University of St. Thomas uh, studying Catholic studies, I was deeply impacted by Christopher Dawson, and in particular, the study of Christian culture. So Dawson was really pointing us back to just the living, organic tradition, and he said that in the modern world, we have to really initiate our students into this living reality. And so that, that really stuck with me and I think even kind of gave me my mission. But it was when I started teaching at the Augustine Institute in 2009 that I first read Dr. Senior. And to me, it's he supplied something essential to complement Dawson. And that is, it's not enough to simply study the tradition. Uh, but this initiation into the tradition has to be living and vital uh, and poetic. Uh, poetic knowledge is, is really um, crucial to Dr. Senior's philosophy of education, meaning that we learn first through our senses and emotions, and it's that concrete experience that then draws us up into more abstract learning. Um, and so I started teaching the restoration of Christian culture at the Augustine Institute, and I definitely have seen a more immediate impact uh, of his writings than virtually anyone else. I mean, yes, I have certainly seen a deep impact of teaching Aquinas to students, no doubt. Uh, but to give one example, um, after a semester uh, of reading the restoration of Christian culture, one of my students said, Dr. Stout, I'm leaving. Well, what, do you, what do you mean? Now, you're not finished with your degree. He said, well, you know what? You, you've been teaching me about culture, but now I'm going to go live it. Um, and he went and just moved on to a farm in North Carolina, and now he does retreats for fathers and sons uh, on his farm, um, really wanting to draw people into this reality. And you know, the, the, the most poignant line in the restoration of Christian culture is smash the TV. Uh, he, he said it was an act of justified violence. <laughs> And I actually have had about a dozen students literally smash their TVs after reading Senior. And so he really does challenge people. I mean, he can be hard to read. He's in your face. Um, just by pointing to kind of overlooked simple truth, but, but in really glaring fashion. Um, and I think because of that, students can be changed because he just really presents them with a choice. You know, are you going to live differently right now? Yes, one of the points that he makes that really struck me is that we understand, we believe that grace perfects nature and grace presupposes nature. But what happens when man becomes denatured? And that's the, the condition of, of, of modern man or postmodern man. And so if one of the most luminous truths of revelation is that Christ came to reveal to us that God is not just an omnipotent master, but he's also a loving father for 
modern person, they may have grown up without a father. Similarly, the the beauty of the the contemplative um, and supremely receptive life of the Blessed Virgin Mary to many would secular moderns would be just dismissed as a, an unempowered and submissive female figure. We've become denatured. Senior, I think, very perceptively realizes that it's actually almost a, a work of pre-evangelization that needs to be done here, that it's about uh, tilling the soil before it's even ready to receive the, the, the seed. He says that, um, quote, our Lord explains in the parable of the sower that the seed of his love will only grow in a certain soil. And that is the soil of Christian culture, which is the word of music in the wide sense, including as well as tunes that are sung, art, literature, games, architecture, also many instruments. In the orchestra, which plays day and night the music of lovers, and if it is disordered, then the love of Christ will not grow. It is an obvious matter of fact that here in the United States now, the devil has seized these instruments to play a dance in the car, a dance of death, especially through what we call the media, the film, television, radio, record, book, magazine, and newspaper industries. The restoration of culture, spiritually, morally, physically, demands the cultivation of the soil in which the love of Christ can grow. And that means we must, as they say, rethink priorities. I think he very insightfully saw that it's not so much intellectual proposition or the intellect that needs to be formed, so much as first the imagination. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, the, the intellect will follow. Um, I, I, that's one of my favorite quotes from Senior, and his genius there is understanding that the soil has to be tilled. It's so easy to look around today and say, well, look, you know, pe people, especially young people, are not maintaining the faith. They're not living out their faith. And we can say, well, yeah, the problem is Catholic education, and the problem is bad catechesis, and perhaps sometimes, I mean, the catechesis has actually gotten a lot better in recent decades. What's the problem? The soil is poor. For the, for the very reasons that he mentions there, the, the media, uh, film, and, and he didn't even know of the abomination of the smartphone yet, you know, <laughs> this yeah. uh, computer that, fo that follows you around, right, and, and dominates your thoughts and your imagination, um, and is constantly filtering reality to you. So, Senior is best known as this Socrates figure, you know, not for his writing. Um, his writing uh, came out towards the end of his life. He, he was known as a teacher, and that's why he's like Socrates. Uh, simply for his presence, his conversation, his mentorship with his students who are right there in front of him. Um, and they've made great impacts. But the program he's known for is the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas, sometimes called the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program. Um, and what he realized is that before students could read the great books, they needed to be humanized. And he said, that's what we're truly trying to do, not teach about the tradition, but to live the great tradition uh, with our students. And so um, what they did is they didn't actually just have a regular classroom experience. The three professors actually had a living conversation in front of the students with no notes, right? They said, you just have to soak it in. Um, they would proceed uh, these conversations with uh, some of the students coming up and singing folk songs and reciting poetry. They would have to memorize poetry. They learned conversational Latin. They would go stargazing. They had traditional country fairs, waltzes. They would take trips to Europe. 
Um, and this is why it was transformative because uh, the students were able to really experience the great ideas that they were discussing um, in the classroom. And it really was a pre-evangelization. They, they did not talk much about the Christian faith. They did read some passages from the Old and New Testament as, as part of their two-year course of studies. Um, they did read Dante and St. Augustine and a little Newman. Um, so there were Christian figures, but they said that it was really uh, the, the conversations and just learning how to think about life and to ask the big questions that led over 200 students um, in this program at a secular university uh, to enter into the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's incredible by their fruits you shall know them. And is it correct that some of those students went on to their religious life, beginning at Pont Gambol in France and then uh, founding the Abbey of, of Clear Creek in Oklahoma? Yeah, about half of the dozen monks who founded Clear Creek uh, came out of the Integrated Humanities Program, um, as well as Archbishop Coakley, Bishop Conley, um, and, and other figures as well. Surely testimony to something very real he was doing there that and you and you see his influence today in contemporary Catholic commentators and writers in, in the US and I know that Joseph Pierce often uh, brings him up and as, as we Anthony Esselin is another example uh, but also different schools St. Gregory the Great Academy in Pennsylvania um, St. Martin's Academy in Kansas Wyoming Catholic College uh, would be a few schools uh, that have been inspired by seniors vision and he said of, of liberal arts that you mentioned some of the universities there, but he, he said of liberal arts universities and great book programs. This was obviously back in the, the 70s and 80s. And he said generally they were doomed to, to fail because the students didn't have the necessary moral imagination to read the great books with profit. So he wasn't necessarily refuting the, the, the premise so much as the, the presupposition of, of these establishments. But he said, what you'd end up with are kind of well-read, skeptical dilettantes. And his, his key insight, I think, is that you have to start the home before that, cultivating the soul of your child, or no education is actually going to, or it's going to be, it's going to be of less benefit later on. And I have a question about those good books that he, he recommends for, mm -hmm. for the domestic church, for family. What, why is it that Tolkien is not on the good books? <laughs> I say it in English. Yes, um, Senior was not a big fan of fantasy. Um, so, he, but he really said that he was emphasizing um, literature before the 20th century. So, he really wanted to uh, root people back into previous cultures. He said when cultures war, were more human. Uh, obviously, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would be on anyone's list today, but he did have his particular reasons. And he, rather than fantasy, um, he wanted a literature that would root people more in an experience of reality. Uh, not, not that there aren't fantastical things that you can find in his list, uh, but I think that's the primary reason why. So it was time. He wanted to go back to older classics um, and wasn't such a big fan of fantasy. Thank you. Uh, yeah. You're probably aware of the father longer network called Tolkien, the greatest evangelist in the 20th century. It's yes, a and it, good statement. But, it, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't dispute that. I mean, uh, Chesterton, it was a better direct evangelist, 
but when you look at how many people Tolkien has reached, I mean, Chesterton has reached many, but uh, Tolkien certainly more. And I would even include myself um, in those reached in a kind of pre-evangelization from Tolkien. So I, I grew up a non-practicing Catholic, and it really was Boy Scouting when it was still Boy Scouting. Um, and Tolkien, that really did till the soil uh, for me, to use Senior's metaphor. They are they're deeply sacramental novels that will leave any reader more disposed, more receptive to the seed of the gospel after having read them than before. However, um, I will say this, and this is not a direct criticism of, of Tolkien, but Senior may have been correct on the fantasy genre, and, and Tolkien certainly helped to open that up. Would there be Harry Potter without Tolkien? I don't know. I mean, many other fantasy series as well. Um, so I don't, I don't think we can directly blame Tolkien for that because Tolkien produced amazing literature uh, with, with such you know, a deep substance within it um, and really a great Christian vision. And yet he did popularize fantasy. And I think there is a diminishment in the imagination. And I think you could, you could even see some of this in uh, Chesterton's own writing where, where he is saying, what is the role of literature, right? It is to help us to see reality. And I think Tolkien does that. But I think today, fantasy is not serving that purpose. right? So seniors' intuitions, I don't think we could just dismiss them. We do want to read C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, right? But I think we should also attend to the reasons why he didn't include them. Yeah, I think that's a very strong point that you make. Uh, that out. I mean, you, see, you could say the, the problems with Harry Potter, if you consider that, that uh, something like Game of Thrones would not be possible really without which is which is just debasing pornography. There is a there is an element by which, as you say, fantasy fantasy is less splendid with the light of faith than say the chanson de Roland, which are which contemporary readers do not have the the intellectual apparatus to to even engage with really. And so they Tolkien can be a helpful stepping stone to engagement with Christian culture such as that. Um, but it could also be a stepping stone, so downwards. But where do you begin even before Tolkien? And where do you go after Tolkien? Those are important questions, and I think Senior can really help there, that we need to sing to our kids, the, the nursery rhymes, right? They, they need a musical education, um, and they need a wholesome formation in the home. And so it's not enough simply to tell our youth to read Tolkien. That's not going to keep them engaged with reality. It is a good experience. But it's not sufficient, right? And so that's where I think the thousand good books, and you can find that list online, um, really do, I, I think, help you to begin even in, in the preschool years. Um, they bring you up into the high school years um, as well and, and really prepare you then to enter into the great books. But reading's not enough. I mean, Senior would say that, right? You know, he said um, to actually do work together as a family. That was crucial for him. Right, because the, forming the imagination is great, but for what end? And so it has to be ordered towards an experience of reality that enables us to then live in the truth. Dr. Senior wrote a very famous essay performed from the chapter of the death of Christian culture, perennial heresy. Can you think <laughs> we outline for us what, what is the perennial heresy? Yes, and it's perennial because you see it um, going all the way back to the Gnostic heresy and beyond. 
Um, but it is the lie that life is not real, um, that everything is truly an illusion. Um, and so Senior had a very interesting experience uh, growing up. And, and let me just give a little bit of the background to his own story because I think it's important to enter into this chapter. Uh, and it's fascinating. Uh, he actually began by reading Western novels as a, as a, as a kid, like middle school age kid. And it, it made him want to be a cowboy. And this tells you a lot about Senior. And so he actually uh, you know, took the money from his piggy bank, went down to the bus station. He was from New York City. Uh, he was born in the city, but then moved out into Long Island. He, he said, how far west will this money get me? And it got him out to South Dakota. And so here he was, 13 years old, just walking down the road by himself in South Dakota. And this rancher picked him up. Um, he said, there's a twister coming. Get in the truck, you know. Uh, and so he goes back and, and learns to be a rancher, even as his dad is doing this national search. So his dad eventually finds him, brings him back to New York. And, and there's an agreement that he can go back to the Dakotas every summer and work on the ranch. But he's still very restless. Um, and so he actually sought to join the local Communist Party. But they told him that to prove himself, he had to steal a book from the library. Um, and so he realized he didn't want to be a communist. He ended up very, you know, fairly young, actually going to Columbia University, um, and he studied with Mark Van Doren. He, he went in and, and asked Van Doren, there's so many great books, where do I start? And so uh, Van Doren just put down Plato and said, start with this one. He said, you can only start one book at a time. Start with this one. Everything um, else is just footnotes. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But it's interesting that Plato actually got him on a trajectory, kind of a, a dualistic trajectory, of looking into modern literature. And so he got into French symbolism. And that was his entry point into the perennial heresy, um, that he was looking at people like Baudelaire, and, and he, he looked a lot in, into even Joyce as the kind of culmination of the symbolist movement. But what he realized is that the writers were actually creating symbols to disrupt your ordinary experience of reality and to bring you into a pseudo-religious experience and a kind of uh, a, 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 into the experience of the mystery of life, but which ultimately led you into nothing into just the nothingness of existence. And, and you fought against that nothingness uh, through decadence. And so he, he wrote a dissertation on that, actually, uh, The Way Down and Out, uh, which was this attempt to kind of face the nothingness of reality and affirm it through decadence and try to communicate this to others through the, the, the symbols of art. And that actually brought him into Hinduism because he realized that there were occult undertones to um, the modern symbolist movement and therefore to modernism itself. Um, and so as he was, was reading about uh, the modern symbolist movement and modernism, he then began re reading authors like Kumaraswamy. Um, and that actually got him into doing Hindu meditation techniques. He, he was actually at Cornell uh, teaching at that time. And he would go into this kind of prayer room. You can imagine in the, at this liberal university, right, having this prayer room. He would go in there 
uh, and, and uh, even do mantras. But what's interesting is that Hinduism really made him uh, face up to the view that what united the symbolists and the East, Eastern occult was the nothingness of reality, the nothingness of existence. The reason why I wanted to start with his own life is the way that he got out of the perennial heresy. Well, one, Kumaraswamy actually led him to Aquinas, if you can believe that. Uh, he was also reading Garan, who, who ended up uh, becoming a Sufist. But the two of them, being Westerners writing about uh, Eastern meditation, were familiar enough with the Western tradition that they were actually quoting uh, Aquinas. And so he said, huh, what's going on with Aquinas? And so he was reading Aquinas. And he was thinking back to his own experiences on the ranch, going out there for five or six summers. And he said that those experiences were real. The hard work, the sweat, the heat of the fire, you know, with a cup of coffee in the, in the morning. Um, and thinking about that, along with reading Aquinas, made him realize what he said, that the real is really real. And that modernism was a lie, trying to disrupt that acceptance of reality. Eastern occultism was a lie. Uh, and that really, he said, he just needed to accept his own common sense, his own experience um, and ability to know the truth of things right before him. And he loved Aquinas' definition of truth, uh, that truth is the conformity or the adequation of the mind to reality. And he said, yes, this is right. He said, this is truth. Um, so after reading, you know, the Summa in Latin, he read Augustine's De Trinitate. He went to the priest at Cornell and said, I want to be Catholic. I've read Aquinas. I've read Augustine. Uh, and the priest said, but have you read this? Um, and gave him the Baltimore Catechism. And he said it was the best book he ever read. <laughs> so that was his experience of the perennial heresy uh, which was even called the perennial philosophy in that movement. Um, so modern authors and, and Kumar Swami spoke of the perennial philosophy, which was this secret knowledge um, undergirding, you know, what we see in sensible reality, you know. Uh, but Aquinas found the true perennial philosophy in Aristotle, Aquinas, and then he also began reading deeply in Newman. Yes, I believe that he would begin many of his courses by quoting the shepherd Corin from Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. Yeah. Uh, he said, quote, the, the property of rain is to wet and fire to burn. <laughs> it's always that return to the grasping of reality. And you gave the scholastic, atomistic definition of truth, the correspondence, the adequation between intellect and reality. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the Nouvelle Theology twisted this to, to give a, a new definition of truth, that it is the adequation between the intellect and life. Mm. And I wondered if you could say anything about how that definition has influenced the contemporary crisis in the church today. Yes, I, I suppose adequation of intellect and life has the possibility of dualism, I mean, as a kind of Platonism. Uh, however, if you dig deeply, you can see this in de Lubac's book, The Discovery of God, and I think de Lubac made important contributions to 
uh, contemporary theology. So I'm not, I don't want to throw him under the bus. And yet, um, he quotes Marichal numerous times in that book. And so you do see how a kind of transcendentalism enters into their epistemology and metaphysics. Um, it, I, I will say this. Uh, if we're going to look at Senior's philosophy of how does symbol work, right? Does symbol disrupt our experience of reality? And C Senior was against having an artificial, kind of surreal, uh, abstract experience, right? Um, and so if you're going to say that truth is adequation to life, you can live within the realm of ideas, and I think when we look at what Senior was really calling us to, even in our experience of the faith, it was to the reality of Christ. Um, and that this is experienced through the symbol of the liturgy. Not a symbol that takes you away from the, your experience in the present, but one that truly mediates something that is real and that is experienced in the concreteness of that encounter. Um, and so he was very concerned uh, about the obscuring of symbol in the liturgy. Um, and we could say the same thing in terms of doctrine. Um, you know, when he says that the Baltimore Catechism was the best book he ever read, what he means by that is that the dogmatic expression matters because it mediates reality, right? It is not something that is simply intellectual. It's not an idea simply, right? An abstraction. And so he saw the modern world as fundamentally abstract and was concerned that the contemporary church was following the modern world in that epistemology, an experience of dogma, um, of symbol um, in the liturgy. Thank you. We consider that the feature, uh, a central feature of the modern world is artifice is abstraction, is rationalism, is detachment from reality, is unreality. Modernity is unreality. And this is brought home in these times where we communicate with our loved ones on Zoom and the, the, the trends only continue in this direction. Dr. David Allen White gives an introduction to the death of Christian culture. He says that, quote, it is not accidental that the major tool the devil currently employs is to draw souls towards his infernal kingdom is virtual reality in its many mechanical guises, a false reality that replaces God's created order of nature with a demonic substitute. And that was back in 2002, I believe. In yeah, he didn't really know what was coming even from there. Exactly, yes. Yes, it's just follow the trajectory. I'd like to quote the directors of IHS Press from 2002. They said that if the servile state means anything, absence of any meaningful human action it is the repetition of monotony to the benefit of the few and to the tremendous expense of the many. We are well down that road and it may be seen in how we have become spectators. For the characteristic of spectatorship is not action but inaction. We watch more and more sports but we play it less and less. We listen to music more and more but we play it less and less. Work is not something that we do but something that we suffer. Politics we leave to others. Education is for teachers alone. Religion is for old women and priests. Milk comes not from the cow but from the supermarket. Clothes come off the rack but not off the home loom. Books are viewed on screen rather than hand.
concern for the old, the young and the infirm gives way to concern for the bank account, the credit card and the compassionless charity telethon. News gives way to gossip. History gives way to lies. Law gives way to tyranny. Government gives way to social control. And Catholicism is giving way to anodyne humanism. In sum, life is ceasing to be action in any meaningful sense. It is becoming a virtual reality. The sickest joke yet of Satan who counterfeits all the gifts of God. We are becoming the spectators of our own lives. Our lack of action means lack of life. And a lack of life is death. Capitalism is death through consumerism. Socialism is death through bureaucracy. Parliamentary democracy is death through boredom. Freemasonry is death through secrecy. Modernism is death through disbelief. Our lack of action is truly abortion right across the board. So that's not John Senior, but I think that's a very seniorian analysis there. And so th this is what really struck me about John Senior, about how deep his critique of, of modernity is, the fact that he actually questioned, what, is, what does air conditioning do for my relationship with God? What are the ramifications of the family no longer gathering around the hearth and the, the loss of the piano in the family home? Could, could you touch on uh, John Senior's perspective on technology? When people read the restoration of Christian culture, it is truly the point that sticks with them. I already mentioned the line, you know, smash the TV, but, but he goes, in, you know, into the point of technology not being neutral in that section when he's talking about smashing the TV. Um, it is true, right? Technology conditions its use. And even with the television, right? He said, it is now mediating reality to you. If you watch it, you are accepting the images, the script, the concepts that are being mediated to you artificially. Um, and this is not how we are meant to experience life. So for him, this was a matter of life and death. Um, if you want to not just conceptually say the real is really real, but if you want to be able to live what is real, you must pull back from technology. You must resist its intrusion in your life. And you see this. I mean, you're talking about families gathering around the hearth. Do families gather at all? Are they reading the good books? Are they, you mentioned playing sports. He does talk about that. He said, don't watch people throwing the ball around. Throw the ball around, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's not just about football or baseball or whatever. It, that is a metaphor of life. Don't simply watch the ball being thrown around, but throw it around. Um, and, you know, people push back against Senior's view of technology and, and its non-neutrality and how it begins mediating reality and leading us into abstraction. People want to push back against that, but it is being confirmed more and more. Technology truly is disrupting relationships. It is damaging our mental health because we are not made for screens. Uh, we are made for the outdoors. I, I, I remember just going to the eye doctor this last year. Uh, I was asking him, you know, about headaches and even trouble, you know, reading. You know, just, he said, your eyesight is fine. He said, but the problem is that you're viewing everything close up. Um, and he said, what you truly need to do is get outside and just be able to look into the distance. And I said, oh, that's why I feel better when I take a walk. He said, yes, that is why. 
Um, and so Senior absolutely, I think, has been vindicated. He said, if you work outside as a family, you know, in the garden or whatever you're doing, you will be healthier. You'll be eating your own food. Uh, you will be spending time together. You will be actually productive, which we're meant to be. Uh, the, the word economy, as we all know, right, it comes from the, the law, the ordering of the home. And there's no sense of that, right? I mean, so I think Senior is saying, if you are not doing things together as a family, like you're saying, gathering around the hearth, why? To read, to sing, to talk. Uh, he, you know, really, it's, he has some beautiful passages in there, just the joy of the family. If you don't need one another and you don't do things together and prioritize the home, we know everyone will just go their different directions. So I, I agree. The, the quote that you read, I mean, other than reading off of screens, which wasn't around yet when Senior was alive, I mean, you could believe that Senior wrote that line. I, you know, I don't see uh, too big of a distinction except this. And, and by the way, <clears throat> I, I will confess that my website is buildingcatholicculture.com. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm guilty. But, you know, I, th I think the term building could give you the sense that you are building something outside of yourself. Like, we need to build culture in society. What Senior really challenges us to is to look at our own daily habits. To me, I mean, another startling line, and I don't disagree with it at all, in, in the restoration of Christian culture, is he said, Christian culture will be restored when we consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Why? I mean, it's a concrete practice that, of course, is not once and done, but, but what he's essentially saying is that our daily life, our habits, our practices, our relationships have to be formed in relation to God. He says, why do we work? It's a great question that, that he asks. He says, it's not for ourselves. It's, it's, it's not even for our families. He said, although we do work for them as well, but he says, we work for the glory of God. And so when we can look at our prayer, right, he says number one is prayer. The Eucharist is Catholic culture. The Mass is Catholic culture is what he says. And we will be restored to Catholic culture when we consecrate ourselves and our families, our parish communities, our countries to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He's saying that that is the, the number one thing that we need to do. But that's not enough either, right? He's saying that our work has to be ordered towards the glory of God. We have to restore a genuine humanity in the home. This is building culture, if you will. I mean, you're cultivating, yes. I mean, cultivating brings us to the root of culture. Culture is to cultivate. Colere in Latin, right? To cultivate, which also means to worship. Um, and we really see how they're connected. So we do cultivate culture, literally, you know. Um, and how do you do that? Right? It is by actually doing things. You are not going to simply change the culture as a whole. That is not in your power, and you will be discouraged. And some people, you know, read Senior and they're like, gosh, that could be discouraging when, when he just eviscerates modern culture. But it is a hopeful message because he is saying there are things you can do. You can live a more human life. You can embrace reality even as everyone descends into unreality. As everyone lives this mediated life, you can return 
to the things that do actually constitute culture. And, you know, it can be overly romantic. I will admit that. You know, some people say, oh, so if I just move back to 10 acres and I just, you know, made my own jam, um, then I will be living Christian culture. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, as if, right? I mean, we can't do that. But to actually do human things together as a family, that your day is actually shaped by prayer. Uh, what Senior says in the Restoration of Christian Culture on Prayer is very deep and very profound. He quotes St. Catherine of Siena very often. He also quotes Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. To live a Catholic life is to enter into the upper room, or, or he says the wine cellar, quoting St. Catherine of Siena, and to truly drink of the depths of reality in that wine chamber, chamber in that upper room. And you will not live a Christian life, a truly human life, if you do not do that. You can make your own jam all you want, right? Um, but, but that obviously is secondary. Right? So the primary thing is actually living a Christian life um, through prayer and the sacraments in relationship with the real persons of Christ and Our Lady, um, and then actually living in relationship with those surrounding us. Um, and not allowing that to be cut off. And then, yes, to work, not just through your job, but I think what Senior calls us to, this is where the making of the jelly comes in, or whatever it is, or you can read the beer option and, and be inspired to make your own beer. Uh, but to actually embrace the mission that God gave us in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, to subdue the earth, and, and that's a positive thing, right? That is to apply our own creativity to nature, to make things, to produce things. God made us to be creative. And so, yes, we do uh, need to draw on the great tradition to learn poetry, to, to learn you know, the great folk songs and, and hymns and masterpieces of art. But we, it's not enough to simply consume those things. He says, do those things, right? Sing yourself, make things. Um, and, and I think that we can then become producers of culture. And uh, Dr. John Senior writes that Christian culture has been so corroded by the successive waves of revolutions against Christendom that to to most people today there's very little that, that is in the, the common the grammar of of the contemporary individual. Um, not to say that that can't be rediscovered and re-nurtured anew. But it seems that he's he, he's advocating an acceptance of a very simple life. Is it correct to say a sort of tacit acceptance that the most sort of splendid fruits of that culture may not be seen for several centuries if we are in a new dark age? I mean, you see, for example, that you know, something as glorious as the Viennese waltz arose organically from many centuries of, of Austrian folk dancing. And actually, folk culture is the soil in which high culture grows. And the, the, that soil has been so depleted, it's going to take a long time to come back. We shouldn't expect another Mozart or Michelangelo around the corner. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. But, but you look at Dr. Senior's life. He gave up teaching in the Ivy League. Uh, he went to the University of Wyoming and then to the University of Kansas. And he simply led his students, his students. He wasn't worried about students at the next campus over. Um, he just led them into good experiences of reality. He gave them things that were truly good, 
worthy, beautiful, and noble, and enrich their lives. And I already mentioned the fruits of that. You know, a, a thriving monastery. They started with 12 monks, and now they have over 50 monks. And at Clear Creek, they're already looking at another foundation in New Mexico. Um, a, you know, a, a college, um, boarding schools for boys, and and there's many more things um, as well. That's one man's impact. And so I, I don't think we can simply underestimate the power of one life lived well um, and simply doing things differently. You know, th this is within our control. We can live differently. Um, we can influence people through organic relationships, senior I mean, he did um, publish, you know, the death of Christian culture and the restoration of Christian culture, but but they were uh, basically just reworking lectures that that he gave, right? You know, so it's not like he set out to write scholarly works. You know, he, he was focused on real things that were that were directly in front of him, and, and so I think he's a great model. Well, St. So Paul says that faith comes through hearing. I suppose, as we've already touched on, the the modern ear is less receptive to the proclamation, the announcement of the gospel message, and so a certain preceding pre-evangelization, tilling of the soil is, is necessary for that receptivity, for that co-naturality with the message of the gospel to allow it to take root. So so what is the importance of people being open to wonder as a perhaps a first step? Senior gives the example of going to a planetarium versus actually being out looking at the stars. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, we can like going to the planetarium, but does it leave you in awe? He said that the ceiling proclaims the glory of man. And that's how he spoke of the planetarium, right? You know, because it's fake. It's a show. I mean, you might learn some things, but if you think of the experience of actually looking at the stars... He said, with the naked eye, right? You actually have to stay up late. You actually have to go out to a place where you can get rid of light pollution. Usually you're, you're with other people, so uh, you're having conversation. Uh, but you're experiencing the glory of God's creation that, that he meant for you to experience and, and which we are largely lacking um, in our culture. I, I think that if more people looked at the stars, there would be less atheists. Um, so wonder is crucial, um, and it, it, without wonder, I think Senior is really pointing us, will we want to really enter into the adventure of discovering the truth? So, so wonder really is the beginning of learning, uh, the beginning of the search for wisdom, and we're not really even looking for it. So yes, we really do need wonder, we need that experience of all, right, they're very much related. Um, where you just feel like reality is overwhelming uh, in its beauty, its grandeur, um, and, and it makes you feel small before it in a way that inspires you. Uh, you know, he had a saying, rooted in the soil, but made for the stars. Um, and so looking at the stars should make us realize that we are dust, right? You know, we, we are completely small uh, before the, uh, the, the universe itself. And yet there's something in us from this experience of wonder that makes us want to discover the stars, uh, that makes us want to seek them and, and to seek the wisdom, not, not just 
the knowledge, right? Because you can have knowledge of the stars. And, um, you know, one of um, John Sr.'s colleagues at the University of Kansas who, who helped found the Integrating Humanities Program wrote a little piece on wonder, which you can find online, Dennis Quinn. And he quoted someone else but said, whatever the stars are, they are certainly not a, a ball of burning gas, right? I mean, so you can have knowledge about the stars, but, but that's not really what we're after, right? The, the stars inspire us to want to really seek the truth of everything. Uh, the truth of our own lives, to, to say, what is this all for? How do I fit into this? Where do I belong? What am I really made for? Um, and so um, we begin with wonder. He says then that, that actually leads us into poetry, right? And, and, and then poetry leads us into philosophy. Poetry begins in delight and ends in wonder. Philosophy begins in wonder and ends in wisdom. And Aristotle said that the primary experience of wonder is gazing at the stars. I live in a, a large metropolis. I can't see the stars outside. John Senior criticizes the modern sort of urban conurbation living for all sorts of reasons, for its detachment from reality. But he talked about the, the classical human city on a, on a human scale, the polis, as opposed to the metropolis of uh, the sort of modern industrial world. And I, can't, I think it might be McIntyre who talked about if you cannot see from a, you know, a prominent vantage point in the city, at any point in the city, if you cannot see the agricultural land on which the city subsists and depends, then if the city is uh, violating proportio. Uh, and I think we see this, this quite frequently. He talks about how the European, great medieval European cities, towns of uh, Assisi, Chartres, Salamanca, they, they complement the landscape. They, they are the culmination of the, the terrain in the way that man is the pinnacle of creation. Whereas the, the great sprawling conurbations of New York, Chicago, but even if you look at something like the, the grid system, it's this enlightenment, rationalist, abstract form imposed on, on nature. Well, there was a, a movement called the Catholic Land Movement uh, that was sort of tied up with distributism in the early 20th century, and the, the leader of that movement, Father Vincent McNabb, said that cities were proximate occasions of mortal sin, reasonably provocative. But uh, what, what would you say about urban living and rural living? Should Catholics return to the land? You know, I, I, I've heard people talking more about the, the village and the town. I, I think it's true that the, the urban jungle <laughs> is very difficult to live with. And I, I, I'm here in Denver. I mean, in the metropolitan area, it's very large. However, on my commute, I, I live in Castle Rock, south of Denver, and I do see uh, some of the ranch land, at least, that is supporting the metropolis. Um, but I, I think what we want is not simply people moving into rural settings because what ends up happening then is you're isolated. There you are with your family, but where's your school? Uh, where's your community, right? You know, where, where are the people to come with you and gather around the hearth? Uh, you have your family, yes, but, you know, uh, there is a way in which that can also become atomized, right? And it's not supposed to be just the nuclear family kind of out in, in the countryside, just, uh, you know, surviving on their own. So I think that the 
idea of a town or, or village in which you're actually cooperating with others for a more complete culture um, may be more promising, but it, it's very difficult because how do you coordinate all of that? Um, and so I've actually been in discussions with people about potentially forming uh, a community of families and trying to um, actually get some economic uh, movements underway because, you know, if you're just out in your own land, what are you going to do, Skype back into the city? Well, there's something very artificial about that too then, right? And if you can't do that, uh, how are you supporting yourself and your family? Um, so it, it seems to me that we need broader movements um, of cooperation and forming communities uh, around somewhere, you know, that, that it's organic. There, there is a church, um, and we're going to commit to this place, um, and that there actually is the potential um, for um, certain social organization of a school and of businesses and, and other things. We're, we're really missing an immediate culture. That is, I can say, I'm going to live differently, okay, but that's not sufficient, right? And, and so it can be very difficult to actually gather momentum with other people. Uh, and I think if we could, it, it would make an enormous difference. Yes, the family is an imperfect society, and it's actually, as you say, it's quite a modern thing to consider the nuclear family rather than the extended family or the model of kinship, which is organic and, as you say, extends the, the bonds of friendship and belonging further than the homestead. And I think what you mentioned about the, the homestead, the isolated homestead, is a, is a peculiarly American feature, the sort of frontier homestead. In, in Europe, it's, it's, I think we still have the you know, very much attenuated but village, like the Christian village, is still there in a decayed form. But you're right about how we need Christian culture to often, as it were, Christians, that there have been attempts, particularly that have been articulated as a Benedict option, but there have been attempts to form Christian communities. And they have encountered all sorts of problems. But I suppose one that comes to my mind is that, as you say, they're not economically sustainable in a sense. Mm -hmm. They're not local economies in a true sense. And in a way, that's because the enemies of the church are so powerful that, for example, starting a farm is actually, at least in this country, is economically unviable. Uh, unless you had serious capital behind you, right? Uh, and this one as well, of big yeah. agriculture, yeah. So, and and as soon as the the enemies of the church, I think it's the devil is so powerful today that as soon as he sees a concerted and a viable attempt at the a growth of Christian culture, which is a a centre of resistance to his new world order, then that would be attacked relentlessly. And I think you see that around these communities, they, they try and establish sort of frontiers in, within which a life of grace can grow. But the modern world exerts such a temptation, such a tempting influence that it only takes, you know, one family that has a television in their room, in their house, or one family who, where the women don't dress modestly, or it's just the water we live in. You know, we swim in, it's mm -hmm. the air we breathe, in a sense, the revolution. It is very difficult because even in such a community, uh, things can become disordered and unhealthy, almost cult-like, right? You know, um, and so it's it's very hard to find balance. And and I think there has to be, well, yes, economic viability, but but also the right balance between family life, the community, 
and and the broader community. I mean, if if you're simply going to shun the rest of the world, there will be problems. I think you know because you turn in on yourself. So yes, you you need families working together to to have a community. But how are you engaging? I even just say other Catholics, right? You know. Um, so I, I think service and mission are, are essential for any Catholic community, not simply isolation and the seeking of perfection. It's difficult because I look to the monastic life as a model. Um, it's difficult, right? But um, And we would want to form monasteries and places of refuge. Um, so I, I think we need communities. You know, I've helped to start a couple of high schools. So we need good communities that rally people together and where we do cooperate. Um, the first high school I founded was very much an effort of families working together. Uh, it was a beautiful expression of culture. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's not only just our own families, right? We, we are drawing more families in. Um, obviously, they're only there, you know, if they are really seeking what, what we're offering. But I think that whole idea of being at the service of the church and, and the community is, is very important. Um, and not simply once again, kind of breaking off and, and seeking refuge because we need more refuge. I'm not denying that by any means, but it, it's from that place of refuge we, that we need to actually engage. Uh, Cause I think that's what we're being called to do. Yes. And it, exactly. We, we are not a subculture. We are the culture. It's the secular humanists who are the abnormal people that it's deeply normal and correct for the West to be Christian. That is who we are. And that is the fulfillment of what it is to be human and also to participate in the supernatural life. I think that you, you're absolutely right that this grassroots effort is, is very important. But I think one thing that gets lost, it's not so considered today, is the importance of social hierarchy. And you look at, for example, how powerful it is that Kanye West starts uh, tweeting just, you know, some, some icons, some orthodox icons. And the, the Second Vatican Council is sort of vaunted as the, the Council of the Laity. Uh, and it did emphasize the universal call to holiness and the role of the laity to sanctify the temporal sphere. But it was also, it was a, a very crafty bait and switch because it gave with the one hand and took with the other, with Dignitatis Humanae and others. Just, you know, contra controversy about what it actually says and whether it actually repeats pre previous church teaching. But the way it was received quite intentionally by uh, the hierarchy of the church was to deny the mission of the laity, which is to subordinate the whole of creation to the social reign of Christ the King. And we have lost the Catholic nobility. And so we now have the, the celebrity who model behavior in all the wrong way. They model vice for mm. society. And so I think with these, with Catholic culture and with Catholic communities, we had a Catholic nobility, a Catholic aristocracy that modeled virtue and re engagement with reality, then that would offset, I think, some of the problems that can emerge in, in uh, sort of intentional Christian communities today. Yeah, and I would come back to institutions like schools, but I, I also know of, and I get messages from across the United States of Catholics who are trying to form Catholic trade schools. Um, and so I, I do think that 
we have to always think not just about getting our families out of the chaos, which, yeah, I mean, I talk about that with my wife, you know, it's just like, you know, when is it too much? When is it too difficult to navigate? Yet, even if we were to move to a more rural area or smaller town or city, you know, we have to be thinking, what can we do? Um, I, as you're saying, to promote the social reign of Christ. And we can't simply concede the culture uh, and society uh, because otherwise, you know, the other side truly wins. They're trying to marginalize us and they're largely succeeding. So I, I think that what we truly need to do is uh, things that are on our scale. Like I said, I started a high school, two high schools actually. Um, others are starting trade schools. Um, there are Catholic, I mean, businesses owned by Catholics that can really even promote the social teaching of the church. I have a friend who has a communications uh, business and, and he is trying to implement Catholic social teaching in his business. And I, I would see him as part of the same movement of, of what we're discussing. And so things are only going to change when we start living differently, not just in our own lives, but working together with other Catholics to actually do things in society. Yes, and you, you touched on their work as a significant part of our environment in which we live and a key factor of culture. Senior writes that we become the work we do. And it's so important today when it's so difficult for a man to provide for his family on a single income, but is the, the desired state of affairs. And he writes that a large amount of work in the bureaucratic state consists in what is called management but it's really manipulation of labor, supplies, and markets. Managers take pride in facilitating and expediting, but how many useless products and needless services are multiplied just for the sake of being facilitated and expedited? End quote. And he talks about how we, we need work that is morally and spiritually invigorating, but also encounters the material universe. And he provides some occupations, he, he enumerates some occupations that do not provide support for faith because they're particularly ungymnastic, that is, removed from natural reality and unmusical, having little or nothing that inspires or leads, leads to personal interior growth. Christians who work in factories, banks, insurance companies, government agencies, marketing, fast food shops, have to rely on faith alone. <laughs> so there, was, there was a time when one could scarcely tear a man, the smith, the cobbler, the joiner, the farmer, away from his work, which he took pleasure in doing well, and was for him more of a vacation than a job. And then he talks about how in uh, a model order in society you would have, which was not too far in the distant past, perhaps 60% farmers, 20% craftsmen, 10% clerks, 5% soldiers, and finally the zero status of outlaws, beggars, criminals, cripples, and clowns. While carpentry, gardening, and crafts puts us into relationship with the physical world, agriculture involves a greater immersion into and requires a more all-encompassing adaptation to God's creation. Well, I, I think one is do consider the traits. Um, I mean, we get into so much college debt um, and then, <clears throat> you know, have a hard time getting a job or doing inhuman work, as Senior is mentioning. So I think we should, we should think more broadly. Uh, of the possibilities and not be confined um, simply to what we think, you know, uh, a lot of people like to go into business because they don't know what to go into. So it, it is difficult though. Um, and, 
you know, I'm, I feel blessed for my vocation of teaching and supporting education. But um, if I were to think of what I would do right now, I don't know. It would be very difficult. I'm not good with my hands. <laughs> but there is a very good career to be had in the trades right now. So I, I think I would tell young men in particular to really consider that. Um, and if they are going to go into business um, or even law, um, I, I would say, can you practice this differently? I, I mentioned my friend who is in the communications business. He, he was offered an executive position uh, with CenturyLink, and he just said, this is not the right way to live. And so he created a business that was more human and where the business was serving good ends. And so I, I would also be creative in that sense, that if you're going to go into some of these areas, um, I mean, if you look at, you know, you mentioned distributism. If, if you look at even um, everyone always points to uh, Mondragon, right, in um, Basque land. But, you know, factories can be conceived differently, you know. Banks can be conceived differently um, that, are, that are operating more um, in line with Catholic social teaching. But that takes courage. It really does um, to say that I'm going to um, be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start a different kind of business that's not simply about me, but it's about serving the common good. It's about um, really enabling my employees to participate um, in the direction of the business and, and to truly share in the profits in a proportionate way. And um, I am going to make business and industry or whatever, whatever area more human. That has to be done. It has to be done. Um, and so once again, if somebody were to say, I feel called to enter into business, would I dissuade them? But I no. but I would say, have the courage to do it differently. The final point to discuss is some of Senior's thoughts on the, the dark night of the church, as he called it. Senior died in 1999. Yes. And we discussed how incredibly prescient he, he was about so many things. But in one of his last interviews, a French newspaper, La Nef, they, they asked him any last words, and he said, quote, the crisis is over. We have lost. This is no longer just a prediction. It is a simple observation. Rome has been desecrated. We are in the age of darkness. Triumphalist reactions are in vain. The modern world and the church deserve the punishment that God is raining down on us. It's not a matter of being pessimistic or of announcing a disaster to come, but of observing that New York and Paris are in ruins and that like Sodom and Gomorrah, they are lying in ashes. The fear of the Lord is not despair, quite the contrary. Insofar as it is the first degree of humility, it is also our second reason to hope. After Our Lady, Mother of Good Hope. And how would you sort of reconcile what some could describe as a tension between seniors' traditionalism and the receptors of his work within the, the beer option, you quote Pope Francis, there is, some would say there's a tension there, making the world Catholic, like first of all, we have to make Catholics Catholic. <laughs> um, and, and when so many refute church teaching, don't believe in the real presence, the post-conciliar crisis, the fact that most Catholics aren't Catholic, or most Catholics who say they're Catholic are not. There's so much to say. So I, I will give some thoughts on this, but one is Senior was quite melancholic, and yet, do I dispute what he said about 
the church entering into a dark night. Not at all. But what is a dark night? A dark night is when the, the goodness of either the senses is denied or even the goodness of, of spiritual realities in the dark night of the soul where you do not see that, you know, that God is present to you. It seems like God is absent to you and any spiritual consolation has been taken away from you. That is actually the way of entering into perfection. Am I saying that we are on the verge of perfection? No. But, but the point of a dark night is that when, say, the truth of the faith, uh, the, the, the presence of the Lord seems to be denied, right? They are still, the, true, the faith is still true. Jesus is still present in the Eucharist. And yet, as far as we can see, uh, these realities are being questioned um, and obscured within the church. This is truly a crucifixion for the church. And thanks be to God, we believe in redemptive suffering. Am I saying that it is redemptive when people deny the faith? Am I saying it is redemptive when the Eucharist is desecrated? No. And yet those who endure such a time in the church may suffer redemptively. It's not that the acts of sin are redemptive, but yet our endurance through them is redemptive. Uh, and so Senior is very clear that in the midst of this dark night, we must cling to the truth of the faith and we must cling to true reverence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, and so he was very clear in his witness that we will only make it through the crisis if we maintain faithfulness to the church's traditional liturgy. Well, that's an important witness uh, that he has to offer. Does that mean that Pope Francis is not Pope? No. I, I mean, I know some people would like to deny it, but um, as far as we can tell, right, he is the Pope. Um, you don't have to agree with uh, everything he says. Um, so I, I think that the church's tradition is broad and rich, and I, I'm not saying that to dismiss anything, but I, I, I'm simply saying that um, in the 13th century, you could be at a wonderful Benedictine monastery that's surrounded by 30 corrupt monasteries. Does that take away the, the truth of the Benedictine life and witness? No. Um, and so I think that we need to be faithful um, without being, this can sound right, without being reactionary, right? And this, well, what I really mean by that is without being bitter, um, without being divisive, and simply say, I will cling to the truth of the faith. I will cling to the church's tradition. I will cling to reverence in the Eucharist. I'm not going to give that up. If the, the, the 30 monasteries surrounding me are corrupt, well, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, but where do I find hope? I mean, I'm teaching 80 students this semester on the creed, and we are entering deeply into the truth of the faith. I am teaching 65 students um, over 30 weeks, um, uh, the, the Christian history of art. Um, and so we're entering deeply into the beauty of the tradition and how this has been handed down. And so I do find hope and courage and simply holding fast to what I know to be good, true, and beautiful and sharing that with others. And that does make an impact. That's not going to change the Vatican. But listen, I teach church history. I know the history of the Vatican. And I, my faith doesn't depend upon there being a lack of corruption in the Vatican or even the papacy. 
that's not what my faith depends upon. The Pope can still be the Pope. Fine. You know, I mean, uh, the church is a family. And I'm not going to deny my father. I'm not going to deny my brothers and sisters, whatever they believe and how they're, they're living the faith. And I am still a member of this family. And I am not going to work for the destruction of this family. I'm not going to divide the family. I will accept my family members as I pray for them. And I work for them for their good. Um, and, I, and I see that we are capable of, of doing much good. When, when I look at Catholic schools in the United States, I, I know it's different in, in the British Isles where in, in both the UK and Ireland, things are a little bit more intermeshed with the government. But um, when I look at what's happened only in the last 10 years in the United States, that we have gone from no parochial classical schools to dozens throughout the nation and even an entire diocese embracing classical education. Um, in my own archdiocese here in Denver, we had no Catholic classical schools 10 years ago. Uh, now we have six. So I, I see uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't serious problems in the church, but this can also sound trite, but it's true. There are always problems in the church. And when you get deep into history, you really see them. I mean, sheer ignorance amongst clergy was rampant throughout centuries in the church. No catechesis happening. Superstition truly living alongside of the sacraments. That's the messiness of life, of the Christian life. There are saints who continue to point us to the truth and to model the Christian life for us. And you know what? Instead of complaining, do what you can. You know, live a good Christian life. Um, start good Christian schools, Catholic schools. Um, start, you know, really building community amongst other families. Don't simply complain. Don't give in to bitterness. Don't give in to despair. God has placed you in this moment for a reason. That can sound trite as well, but it is true, right? It is truly your vocation to respond to this moment in time right now. So do it. Senior wrote that for those who border on despair, especially now, it's essential to remember that the church has never looked so much like Christ as when she was broken and betrayed from within. Yeah. You could look at Christ on the cross and say, well, I guess that didn't work, right? I mean, that's, we're actually being redeemed, you know? Amen. And we have to see the opportunity to take up our crosses, to, to make reparations, to do penance, as who are we, these unworthy creatures, to be able to join these these penances and sacrifices to the supreme sacrifice of our Savior. And, and, and Joseph Ratzinger was right when he said the deepest suffering we experienced is from within the church. Mm -hmm. That's not only now. I, I think that's throughout time as well. And um, that is how we become holy, by faithfully enduring suffering within the church and, and without. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Stout. Are there any other final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I mean, why not put in a shameless plug here? You mentioned the beer option, but I have a newer book out called Restoring Humanity, Essays on the Evangelization of Culture. Um, and so I, I really look at the nature of Catholic culture in there, uh, the relation to beauty, to nature and the land, actually, to the family, um, to Catholic education and to society. So I go a little bit more into particular points on actually forming practices and, and what we can do um, in order to respond to the secular culture in which we live. So I would simply say 
Um, yeah, you may find ideas in that book, but beyond that, it, it really does come down to living differently. Live your faith, um, form truly Christian practices, and let's start rebuilding from there. Amen. Thank you very much.